Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 139. Paul, last week was a big week uh, in yeah. the Okie Dokie Most podcast because our our master, our Messiah, the Son of God, has died in yeah. the Gospel story. We've been walking to get to this point for three years now and we're, we're finally here where Jesus gives up his spirit from all of the suffering and hardship that he had been enduring that we had been seeing in the text for the past few weeks Yeah, and lots of things happened leading up to him passing we have one of the two criminals seems to display some form of true repentance with asking Jesus to remember him when he goes into his kingdom and Jesus affirms and assures him that today when they both pass, you know, soon enough that he's going to be with Jesus in the paradise portion of the grave or Sheol, which was a big story. A lot of people use that in their theology today about bedside conversion, but we, we wanted to try to push back on that as much as we could in terms of what does it mean to be a true believer, a true identifier uh, with God and his principles? Yeah, and then just, just other stuff, Jesus cried out. He was referencing Psalm 22 about saying, My God, why have you forsaken me? We fought back against that misconception that God really had forsaken Jesus and that right. uh, all of the sin of the universe or the world was being placed on him, which means, you know, God couldn't be near him. Jesus was in his humanity was feeling abandoned, but God, the father in no way had abandoned him because Jesus had been faithful and fulfilled Torah. And he was almost to the end in terms of completing his mission. And this was just one final case of him being weak and trying to search the scriptures for meaning and wisdom and he was trying to find it in Psalm 22 and then we ended with once he did pass that there was the the earth was shaking and it said the curtain that huge super tall super thick curtain in the temple was torn in two lots of misconceptions we were fighting against last week that we were saying that that was not suggesting that the temple system, the Levitical system, the old law uh, was now obsolete or done away with. It's Jesus's death is now reopening that way back to Eden, back to overlapping between heaven and earth with God. Um, and yeah. you could also say it's like God's grieving. He's he's rendering his garments because humanity in their twisted mind and letting sin and death be their ruler has killed his only begotten son. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I'm listening to you. And in each of those things, even though we did spend some time trying to push back, redefine this, that, whatever, amazingly, in all of those, there there certainly was, you know, some measure of truth, but but somehow it was just a little off. 
you know mm-hmm. and 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 we know i mean what's the like if you if you're trying to walk a straight line and you get slightly off at first you don't notice but you know 100 miles down the road you're far 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 off the path so yeah, yeah it's it's a uh, yeah it's good good thing well you might especially if you weren't us 2000 years later who know the story and i mean it's even why we are part of maybe the christian religion or you know whatever <laughs> if you were back there you might be looking at all this stuff thinking wow this is really bad news but hopefully we'll see some of the good news that's coming how about we start reading and see what the story has for us next in matthew we're looking at chapter 27 we're going to be looking at verses 52 to 56 This aligns with Mark chapter 15, verses 39 to 41, and Luke chapter 23, verses 47 to 49. I'm going to go ahead and read from Matthew, and I want to grab a little bit from Luke because he says something extra or different there. So here's Matthew. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection... They went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. All right, here's a little bit from Luke. He says, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. Okay. So, I mean, you know, we're still, we're in like, you know, the bad part of the story, if you will, but we're, we're headed towards some more light. Here we have, there were, there were many other things, that, like this was talking about, you know, the earthquakes and that, and, and people being raised, whatever. Just, that's not in your scripture. There are many other things that occurred after Jesus's death. And these, most of them have to do with like inside the temple or the religious leaders or the priesthood or something like that. Uh, Here's just a few of them, Samuel, because I just find this so interesting. So every Yom Kippur, they used to cast lots and they were trying to figure out, you know, uh, which uh, goat they were going to choose or this, that, whatever. Anyway, the point is they cast this lot and Yom Kippur, it quit coming up in the right hand. And this is important because according to Jewish tradition, writings, whatever, everything that's passed down, it had consistently come up in the right hand from the day that God had instituted it. And all of a sudden, Jesus dies. It never comes up in the right hand again. It's always in the left. Hmm. There was a red cloth. And, and again, during the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement, that red cloth used to supernaturally turn white. Again, this is tradition, writings, whatever, passed down. This this always happened. But somehow, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, after Jesus dies, 
the red cloth stops turning white. The westernmost lamp of the menorah, all of a sudden, after Jesus dies, the westernmost lamp refused to stay lit. They'd light it, it would go out. They'd light it, it would go out. I mean, <laughs> kind of crazy. This one, they're, they're, the temple doors, the big temple doors, they had you know locks on them, all this kind of stuff. They would unlock and open all on their own. It just happened randomly. And all of these things, this isn't your scripture talking about it. This is, this is other Jewish writings talking about these things. And you know, Samuel, do they want to write anything that's actually going to somehow support or endorse or favor Jesus? No. No. But they wrote all of these things because these are things that actually happened. Supernatural things that used to occur that kind of showed God's presence or continued involvement with Israel, whatever it might be, they stopped. They just stopped. And all of these things were signs of not that God had abandoned Israel. They were signs of the impending doom, the fact that the temple was going to be destroyed, that they were going to enter into yet uh, another, or some would say a continued exile, whatever you want to call it. So anyway, I just want to tell about those things because they're kind of neat. Since we're talking about weird things that happened, Matthew tells us a very interesting detail. Now, presumably, when the earth shook and the rocks were split, I don't know, we, we kind of get the idea, maybe it was at that moment, that many tombs were also opened. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it's at least logical reading the text. You can imagine how that might happen. And he says that many of the saints who had died and, of course, fallen asleep, whatever, you get the metaphor, but many of those, they were raised from the dead. Now, here's the difficulty, Samuel. Remember, this is Friday afternoon, evening, whatever. It's nearing sundown. And he also says that they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. Well, that's kind of weird because his resurrection, we'll just call it Sunday morning-ish. So did they were they raised from the dead on Friday evening and they just sat in the tomb until Sunday morning waiting? That seems kind of weird. <laughs> or should we just look at Matthew's words and say, well, no, he, he started talking about this stuff, and as he was listing a bunch of things, he actually talked about some of the things that happened, you know, even into the future, a couple days later. It was a look ahead. And, and maybe it was that, which is to say that the tombs opening and the bodies being raised, they didn't actually happen until... Jesus's resurrection. It wasn't Friday afternoon. It was more like Sunday morning-ish. Well, that could be. We don't really know. I guess it could have been either, but sitting around in the tomb just sounds weird to me. So whatever it was that happened, these raised people, they went into Jerusalem and they were seen by many. It was a, it was a demonstration of God's power. And some think, and I would tend to agree with them, some think that this was, it was an endorsement of Jesus's life, Jesus, period. And so, Samuel, I have a question though. Jesus is resurrected, these people are raised. So what happened to these people 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line? I was asking myself that same question. <laughs> right? Yeah, everybody should. And the thing is, we're never told. I mean, we don't really find not only not in scripture, we don't really even see it in like other writings. 
it's it's like nobody seems to find it near as important as we do when we read it. But we're kind of stuck, and, and what we need to do is look at other parts of Scripture. So we're kind of stuff, stuck assuming that they must have eventually died again. And there's nothing weird about that, because every single person who has been raised in the Scriptures, whether it was by Jesus or Elijah, Elisha, Peter, Paul, it doesn't matter. All of these other people who get raised in some manner, they all eventually die, as far as we know. And so uh, we think that's what happens to these people as well. These people, I think it's probably reasonable to assume that these were local people, you know, in and around Jerusalem, because they come into the city. So, you know, you're not going to raise somebody a thousand miles away, and they're going to walk to Jerusalem to say, hey, look, here I am. And I would have to say, I don't know this, uh, but I think a lot of scholars believe it, a lot of people, I think it's reasonable to assume they were recently dead. And when I say recently, you know, maybe, maybe days, weeks, months, even years, but not like Abraham and Moses kind of dead. You know what I'm saying? This mm-hmm. is more recently, within maybe a generation or two, something like that. Now, we don't have any proof for that either. This is just people trying to figure, well, okay, what could this really be? What would this really look like? Well, that that's what many people think is going on here. Before you move on to the next bit in the text, do you know if there's anything in Jewish writings that speak to any of these people that had been resurrected and and come to Jerusalem? I just wonder if like, in the midst of all those people, if there were some like Torah scholars, like Pharisees or um, zealots, Essenes that would have been fairly well known that had recently passed and then were brought back that would have been motivation to have been written in some kind of textual form. Yeah, it's funny. There is a story. I mean, I'm sure there's more than one. I remember one in particular, and it was a guy that he was a well-known rabbi of the age, and he had come back. He'd been dead for quite some time. I don't know, maybe call it a, a decade or something like that. I don't know exactly. But he came back, and he went around visiting all of these different people. The problem was no one actually believed it was him. And so he became frustrated bothered by the whole situation and he sat down and prayed that God would just let him be dead again because he didn't want to be alive if nobody was going to see him, recognize him, listen to him, anything like that. I mean, it's kind of a downer story, right? Yeah. (laughs) But uh, so all that is to say, well, yeah, there are some stories, but I don't know if they should be taken literally or not literally. Were they were they from believers? Were they from people who weren't believers? I, you know, I don't know. It's it's all, it's kind of a weird one, Samuel. But yeah, there are some stories. Hmm. Now, the one of the points I want to make, though, is that this was not, this little resurrection or raising of people, whatever you want to call it, this was not all of the righteous of all the generations of all time that had preceded Jesus who were, you know, kind of being held in wait for the life and death of Jesus, it, it wasn't that. People try to make it that, but they await 
in paradise. They're waiting for the real resurrection. This was just a, a local supernatural event. And what we would do, one of the w- words I like to use is, hey, when we're talking about Jesus, why don't we save that word resurrection for him? Because he's the only one that's been resurrected, actually lives and lives eternally, got his new body, the whole thing. Everybody else, why don't we you know, use a different word, maybe like resuscitation or something like that? So anyway, that's, I think, what happened to these people here. But So we shouldn't treat these people as having their new uh, new covenant bodies, so to speak, in I, the same way that, that Jesus had right. his restored body, where there's this weirdness of being recognizable and sometimes and other times not, and doing weird properties like being able to pass through walls and everything. Right. That, that is, this is something different than that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And again, that's sticking with the idea that, well, these people died, they were raised up somehow, and then they eventually died again. And because the the other side of that story is, well, if it wasn't that, then they would have had to have been resurrected like him. They would have had their new bodies like him. They would live eternally. And then they would mm-hmm. either be running around the earth for the last 2,000 years, or they also would have ascended with mm-hmm. him. And we have no indication of anything like that. So yeah. it's it's just a difficulty, but whatever it was, it's a miraculous thing. It's a proof. It must have affected people at the time. And we just kind of have to look back and go, eh, I don't know. Sounds interesting. Lazarus is another example that would right. be fitting in this category, right? Yeah. Yeah. He eventually dies. So yeah, we're categori- categorizing them like that. Gotcha. So anyway, we're also introduced to this centurion guy. And actually, it's funny the way you read it in the text. It's like we should know who he is. He seems like he kind of appears out of nowhere, but whatever. Um, he's obviously watching over the crucifixions. And therefore, he's a witness to some of these signs that were accompanying Jesus's death. I mean, the big obvious ones would have been like the darkness that they experienced or the earthquake that they experienced or whatever. Now, he was quick to recognize that there was something special about this guy. Now, we even get a sense that he may have witnessed some of the things that went on at Pilate's place because he declares, well, one of two things. He either says that Jesus surely was the Son of God, which came up in that conversation back at Pilate's place. Now, he's probably, you know, having that Roman way of thinking, not the Messiah way of thinking, but whatever. He maybe heard that phrase and now he's going, yeah, he really was a son of God. Actually, he says the son of God, whatever. Uh, (laughs) Or the other thing that uh, is reported is that he said he truly was innocent, which also came up in that conversation uh, back at Pilate. So you get the idea uh, from that. Now, Matthew suggests that it wasn't only the centurion, but that the other soldiers saw and understood as well. Now, Luke, instead, he has it that the crowds were actually swayed. Remember how, Samuel, we talked about them. Man, how can they do this? I mean, it just seems so awful that they're standing around, even if they don't like the guy, but seeing him uh, tortured, dying, hanging on a cross, mm-hmm. whatever, and they have no, no mercy, no empathy, no anything. That sounded awful. Well, actually, Luke has it that in the end, they were swayed. They went home beating their breasts, which is a sign of repentance. Somehow, they, they, they seem to have come to understand that, you know what? 
his death was wrong. Something horrible had just happened. They had witnessed it. And, and it was a horrible thing, but thankfully there is, you know, a bit of a silver lining, at least in their repentance, if nothing else. But finally, we're told of many others who witnessed this moment, and some of them uh, were acquaintances. Specifically, we talk about the women from Galilee, and we're given the names. We've got Mary Magdalene, which again, it's Miriam, Mary, the mother of James, that would be James the Younger, or as we have joked before, Little Jim, right? <coughs> But her name is also Miriam. And, and then there's, uh, he's, I'm sorry, she's the mother of James and of Joseph. And then there's Salome, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder. Now, again, I don't know if you remember, we had a list kind of like this in a recent past, John 1925. This list is very different. John had his mom, his aunt, and Clopas's wife, or his aunt who was Clopas's wife, we never could figure that out, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene's the only one who's a real match between the two lists, unless we're to understand that the mother of James and Joseph is actually a reference to Jesus's mom. Some think it is. They have good reason. Uh, as we continue in the text, we may see even some more support of that. Uh, some others think that it's not, that it's actually referring to someone else, whatever. We can't know for sure. We're not going to like stick a, a stake in the ground and act like we know something we don't know. But, it, you know, there you go. It's somebody close to him. And you got to say, imagining all that was going on, the potential association with a condemned criminal, all this kind of stuff. These were strong, faithful, bold, brave women doing what they were doing, hanging out. This was this is I mean, this is amazing what they're doing. They played an integral role in Jesus's life and in his ministry, and and now here they are at his death. They are faithful. They are loyal, and they're risk-takers for his sake. They receive lots of mentions throughout the Gospels, and this is it's all amazing considering that this is such a patriarchal society. And mm. so for people who really try to hold women down, hold women back from you know, their role within the body, within the church, man, I think they, they just take it too far. Could it be that there are certain things where it's like, you know what, this really is appropriate, that it is for a man, for the male of the species, and and it is not for the woman. Could there be a thing or two? Sure, yeah. But I think sometimes we hold them back from a lot of roles and, and jobs, positions, whatever, where they could be really useful and really good at what they do. So anyway, here you see, even in the Gospels, they're being raised up and, and recognized. So it's good stuff. Mm -hmm. All right, Samuel, yeah. what do you got there? If people were to remove their biases of what they think Scripture and the biblical faith is trying to convey, and they were to look at texts like these, that it should scream to them, that the that the biblical authors and that God Himself is saying, "quote Women are awesome." Like, yeah. In no way is it doing what people argue that it tries to suppress or bring down the role or the authority or the uh, importance of women in the story. Right. So there's there's equality there. It's just roles and responsibilities between the two yeah. are what's different. Yeah. 
I did want to ask since we're on the topic of women, like the the text here gives space to mention the women that were present here as Jesus passes away on the cross. But what I do want to ask in comparison, which, if any, of the disciples would be here right now? Because the text doesn't really say anything, does it? Yeah, the only indication we have, I think, would be from when Jesus was talking to John and his mom Mm -hmm. uh, in John's gospel. So maybe we consider John might still be here, might be around, uh, but the others, we just don't know. It could be that they were afraid to be there because they didn't want to be associated and included and somehow, you know, killed with him or soon thereafter or whatever. Or it could be that we're just not hearing about it and, and you know, this is their, their master, their teacher. I mean, their Messiah that they believe and, and maybe they are there and, and it's just not mentioned explicitly. Don't know. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right. Well, we're going to zip back over to John. And boy, I got to tell you, Sam, you'd think this end of the story would be so easy to put together and sequence and all that. It's just hard. But anyway, we're back on John. Yeah, I know. Uh, Chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. It's kind of long, but it's a single story. So here's John. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So I think right there is the answer to your question. John Mm. is suggesting that he's there watching it all Mm. and he's relating his eyewitness testimony. So there you go. All right. So (laughs) at this point, you know, we're getting some thoroughly Jewish info. Okay. This was the day of preparation. We've mentioned this a number of times already. That means that it was Friday when this was happening. So we have agreement, I think, in, in a lot of the text here. And this was the day that Jews, why do they call it the day of preparation? Because they're preparing for Saturday, the Sabbath, the day on which they could do no work, no creative work. And we're also told that this particular Saturday, this particular Sabbath was a high day. And this simply meant that it was it was a festival Sabbath. And what I mean is, if it was a different year and it was on a different day, let's say that the festival Sabbath well, it could have fallen on a Wednesday or a Monday or, or any other day. On this particular year, it happened to fall on a Saturday. So it wasn't just a regular weekly Sabbath. It was also a festival Sabbath. So that made it special. So it's kind of like a double Sabbath or something. Anyway, in this case, it was a Sabbath of Passover. Now, the point of telling us this was to emphasize 
that leaving bodies on the crosses would have been highly offensive. It violated Torah. And this is always interesting to me. Rome honored these kinds of religious stances of the Jews. Now, you can go see the, the actual original, why was it offensive or why couldn't they leave him hanging? This is back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. But the point is, the Jews, and I guess we have to say this is probably Caiaphas or some of the other leaders, the Jews ask Rome, hey, could you please break their legs of all those being crucified so that they'll die quickly? Some suggest that this was because they could not support themselves. Okay, so they're hanging up on the cross, and the theory is that they've got something on the cross, like a little uh, extra board into that that tall beam or something like that. It's something that they can support themselves with using their legs. They can kind of lift themselves up occasionally. Others think, nope, it was just because they had the big nail going through their ankles or whatever, and they were using that, and they'd, they'd kind of lift themselves up. The point of it is that if they just let themselves hang, the theory is that they would suffocate. They they couldn't breathe. And so if they'd lift themselves up, they could breathe a little easier. And it, it, it actually prolonged their agony. But in this case, they wanted them to break their legs so that it would hasten their death. If they couldn't lift themselves up because their legs were broken, well, then they would die more quickly, uh, like suffocation. Now, There's a lot of controversy about that. Is that really true? Is that how it would work? Is that how your body would respond? Whatever. I'm not a doctor, never played one on television, so I can't tell you what's true or not true or whatever. But in the text, we do know that for some reason, breaking their legs was going to hasten their death. So whatever the medical reason is, that's the point. So... These soldiers, they start with the other two, the criminals. And (laughs) Samuel, I'm just saying, they've gone through a lot. They're suffering a lot of things, but seriously, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. breaking their legs, how much did they? Because they're going to feel, it's not like they're dead yet. They're going to feel getting (laughs) their legs broken. (laughs) Oh, I know. How much is that going to hurt? Oh my gosh. I just can't even believe it. And you know what? Now I feel bad. I should have researched, how did they do that? How did they actually break their legs? And I didn't do it. I I probably thought of it and forgot or whatever. I don't even know the method that they used to pull this off, but whatever it was, it had to hurt. just had to be awful. But when they got to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and they just didn't even bother breaking his legs. However, one of the soldiers And, you know, we don't know exactly why. We kind of get the feeling, well, maybe he's just making sure that Jesus really is dead. Whatever. He pierced Jesus's side and blood and water came out. Now, again, I'm not a doctor. Some see this as an important medical indicator that Jesus is, in fact, dead, dead. They see this as puncturing the pericardial sac. And so, I don't know how much anybody knows about this, but your heart, you've got a little bit of a a membrane, a sac of some kind, whatever, around the heart. And inside it, there is this serous fluid. And and maybe you've even heard people who've had a medical condition like where water builds up around their heart or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, what they're actually talking about is this serous fluid. And so what they're suggesting is this guy punctured him with the spear, what it actually did was hit the pericardial sac 
and both blood and the serous fluid came out. And, okay, maybe. I don't know that that's what happened, but that's, you know, people are trying to figure out how could that be? What would it mean? The but point if it's is... it's around the heart, how would it show up in his side? Well, I, yeah, and I don't, I don't know. I, I don't okay. know. They're just saying... It depends on how you imagine when they say poked him in the side, where does that mean? And some mm-hmm. people, have, I guess they have a much broader, you know, hey, range. It could be anywhere over here. And other people are like, no, it's got to be right there. How do you reach his heart? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know about any of that. Gotcha. I do know this. If it was, in fact, the puncturing of that pericardial sac, you don't walk away from that. And the reason I'm talking about some of these things related to his death and what people imagine happened and all of this is because, you know, there's a lot of controversy. Did he actually die or did he merely swoon, meaning passed out or, you know, went unconscious or whatever? So I'm just trying to point all this stuff out. If 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 this was, you know, puncturing that sack, well, okay. if he if he wasn't already dead, well, that was going to make sure that he was. But, of course, we believe he was, in fact, dead. These people weren't stupid. They understood what what dead people looked like. Now, others, they actually look to the symbolism, and they see the exit of both his life, and that's represented in the blood, and the exit of his spirit, and that would be represented by the water. And both of those are indicators of death. So they would look at this and say, well, they're not... You don't have to take it literally. I don't know if the soldier really poked him or not, but the, what John's telling us, this is, this is showing the exit of both his life and his spirit. Eh, maybe. I don't know. Uh, they might also see the water as representing, you know, the living water, which is kind of like a representation of the Holy Spirit or something like that. All of these things, it's all good imagery in its own way. And uh, for what it's worth, Man, Samuel, this was, I I never knew this, but I read it. I thought I'd throw it in here. There's one additional connection to the Passover lamb in Mishnah Tamid 4.2, which, okay, it's not like I sit around reading stuff like that, but I, I found this. It actually specifies that the priest, in certain circumstances, is to pierce the heart of the sacrificial victim, goat, lamb, whatever, and cause the blood to come forth to, I guess it's to speed up the draining of the blood or something like that. I don't know. Now, it's difficult to know whether John was actually trying to communicate uh, anything related to any of these little theories that we've talked about, or if he was actually trying to communicate all of them or some portion of them. I, I don't know. We don't know. But they're all interesting little bits. I thought I would throw in there just because this moment of his death, the fact that he's hanging up there dead. I mean, this, this is it's a big deal. We see all this. We, we don't know how much of it John is including just to be like, hey, here's some facts, or he's trying to relate it to some, you know, mystical ideas or whatever. We don't know. But John does want us to know one very important thing. He was there. He witnessed it. He is telling the truth. And he's telling you so that you may believe. Now, obviously, he wrote this for the people of his time, but it's also for us. We get to read this, and we're hearing it so that we might believe. And then he backs it up with some scripture. First, uh, he speaks directly of the law regarding the Passover lamb, and and he's uh, you know highlighting this part about no bones were to be broken, 
you could read that back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. It's also in Numbers 9, 12, and that one seems a little more clear. So Samuel, why don't you read that one for us? They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. Yeah. So there you go. Passover lamb can't break its bones. So there's a direct connection there. Speaking of Messiah, in Psalm 3420, they have, well, Samuel, why don't you read that? He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Yeah. So you see there's the scriptural connection in the Old Testament itself, but then John is kind of bringing it forward, mentioning the part about them not breaking his bone. Uh, John also quotes from Zechariah 12.10. That's already there in the text. Now, the whole context of Zechariah, it covers chapters 12, 13, and 14, and it's all about salvation, the shepherd being struck down, the day of the Lord, that's the big context. So when when we pull out this one little verse, uh, John is, I think he's alluding to, hey, this we're, what, what you're seeing in Jesus here, what you're seeing even in his death is salvation. You're seeing the shepherd being struck down. This is the day of the Lord. As it turns out, it's only one of the day of the Lord that we see in Scripture. The big final one is also coming. But This may give us a little more clear insight into how John was seeing the relevance of the piercing and the flow of blood and water. It was fulfilling scripture, that whole greater context. And so, I mean, basically, it's John, again, just saying Jesus is Messiah. God is faithful. All of this together, it's it's truly mind-blowing stuff. Anyway, uh, let's stop there. Samuel, what do you got? Um not really anything to add to the all the goodness that you have already spoken of other than I googled real quick what uh, Rome used to break the legs of oh. people who were being crucified yes. and it was an iron club fantastic yeah speak <laughs> of, talk about the iron fist of Rome ouch oh, yeah oh, I just can't even imagine an iron yeah. I mean, oh my gosh and you gotta imagine was it a one-strike ordeal? No. <laughs> they, I, they probably had to try multiple times, you know, and the guy's going, okay, enough already. It's broken. <laughs> oh, man. I just can't imagine. It's got to be off. Yeah. Got to be off. All right. Well, hey, it's a really good story, so let's just keep going. We're going to be looking at, man, I'm going to read all kinds of stuff. So we got Matthew 27, verses 57 to 58, Mark 15 verses 42 to 45, Luke 23 verses 50 to 52, and John 19 verse 38, at least most of it. All right, what should I do here? I'm going to read Mark, and then I'm going to actually read from everybody else too. So here we go. Here's what Mark says. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. All right. 
Matthew adds a little bit of extra detail about this Joseph of Arimathea. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Okay, that's interesting. Let's see, Luke has, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. And finally, Jod adds one little bit, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. All right. So we learned a lot about this Joseph guy. Let's see if we can kind of put it all together. Since it was nearing the end of the day, if they were going to get Jesus off that cross and get him buried, they were going to have to move quickly. Now, Jewish law said that he must be buried that day or the land would be defiled. Now, again, uh, that's going back to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. Now, under normal circumstances, he would have just been buried with the criminals. It would have been in a, a public cemetery maintained by the Sanhedrin. Or, worst case, they might have just been thrown on a trash heap. I mean, it's, it's really not very honoring at all. Now, it was Friday, as we've said, the day before Sabbath, as we've said. But when does Sabbath begin, Samuel? Begins Friday at sundown. At sundown, yeah. So none of the work required to bury him could be done on Sabbath. So there was a lot to do and little time to do it. And, and so then we were introduced to this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. And just for what it's worth, Arimathea is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was also the birthplace of the prophet Samuel. But this Joseph guy, uh, what do we know about him? Well, he's rich. He is a good and righteous man. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He had not consented to their decision and action that led to Jesus's crucifixion, death. He was looking for the kingdom, which is a way of saying similar to uh, the guy earlier in John that was looking for the consolation of Israel. Uh, Someone else was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. He was looking for the Messiah, who was in fact the king of that kingdom. All of those kinds of things, but he was looking for the kingdom, and he was a disciple of Jesus. So you might even wonder, did he in fact find the kingdom, right? We don't know. But John tells us that he, he, was, he was a disciple, but he was actually a secret disciple because he was afraid of the Jews. Samuel, is there something kind of weird about that? Um, didn't you just say that he was a member of the Sanhedrin? Exactly. So yeah. Wouldn't that mean that he is a part of the Jewish leadership? Exactly. Yeah. John is always famous for calling the Jews out, and he usually means the leadership in Judea, in Jerusalem, the Jews. Well, it's hilarious because he was a secret disciple because he was afraid of the Jews, and as it turns out, he is the Jews. So anyway, you can see how that phrase, it just can't mean what you think it means, mm. right? It, it's, it's, it's a very isolated, distinct part of the Jews as a people. So anyway, 
He's part of the Judean leadership. He may have continued to reside in Arimathea, and you never know. That may have been the very thing that that kept uh, him with like a clearer head. He was able to maybe see and understand who Jesus was better because he wasn't always staying in Jerusalem or something. We don't know, though. We don't know. What we do know is this. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, and he is a disciple of Jesus. So when you start thinking about who were Jesus's disciples, it could be regular people. It could be sinners. It could be people in the Sanhedrin. It could be people in the priesthood. They could be from everywhere, and they were from everywhere. So it's important that we get that that image in our head. Anyway, Joseph, he's asking Pilate for the body. And this is a risky endeavor. And it's it's risky from two sides. On one side, interacting with Rome is always risky. But in this case, he is associating himself with someone who is, he's been condemned, he's been executed. And I mean, that's bad. This is a great risk on Joseph's part. Number two, it was risky because he's got to know that the council, the Sanhedrin, they're going to hear of what he's doing. And so this is also very risky. It's it's a political firestorm, if you could adopt a phrase from today. Now, Pilate, he's actually surprised that Jesus is already dead, but he, he goes ahead and verifies it with the centurion, finds out it's true. And so Pilate orders that his body actually be given to Joseph. So there you go, Samuel. That's the next bit of the story. Got anything there? Would I be reading into the story too much to hypothesize that Pilate's emotions of being surprised that Jesus was already dead could potentially be connected to that wrestling that we've talked about in weeks prior with him? I mean, we're affirming he's a bad guy, but there was also something different about what he was getting through his interactions with Jesus and that maybe there was just something in his psyche that's like now that I've sent him away like and it's out of my hands I wonder what actually is going to happen or if he's claiming to be this king I wonder if that means that you know he's going to just like be resilient and hang up on that cross for days and days and days on end because he refuses to give up. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. just 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 playing around with the text a bit. Yeah, Pilate sitting around wondering, he finds out he's dead and he has that moment of, huh. I guess it really did all come to nothing. You know? Yeah. yeah. I I think that's totally reasonable. Of course, you know, he's probably also going to hear something about him being resurrected and stuff later. So who knows? Who knows? Yep. yep. Anything else in there? I don't, I don't think yeah. so. It's just story time. I, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. Well, let's try and fit one more bit in here. Boy, it, well, it could be a lot. We'll see what happens. We're looking at Matthew chapter 27, verses 59 to 61. Mark chapter 15, 46 and 47. Luke 23, 53 to 55. And John, we're, gonna, we're in ver- chapter 19. We're going to get the final sentence of that verse 38, and we're going to go all the way through 42. I'm going to read John, and then there's a couple little things I wanted to highlight in the other guys. So here's John. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, interesting little additions. In Matthew, he tells us that Joseph lays him in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. So it wasn't just any old tomb. It was one that Joseph had commissioned. And then Mark tells us that Joseph bought a linen shroud. So if you were wondering where it came from, he just bought it. So anyway, lots of interesting stuff here. So Joseph gets the permission from Pilate and he takes his body. And then John tells us that Nicodemus, whom we've heard a couple times before. First, it was back in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. That was their secret night meeting that John mentions. But then we also had one other little bit. This was in John chapter 7, 50 to 52. That was where uh, Nicodemus kind of sticks up for Jesus uh, when they were, you know, people were down on him about something. But anyway, Nicodemus is also a member of the Sanhedrin. And he's also rich. And he is also looking for the kingdom. And I think maybe we have that question. Was he also a disciple? And I would say, considering what we're about to see them do, that it's very likely I would even go so far as to go, heck yeah, he was. But anyway, Nicodemus joins with Joseph to bury Jesus. Now, Nicodemus brings, this is crazy, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Samuel, this is an excessive amount. Very expensive. I mean, like ridiculously expensive. It's literally fit for a king. If there was a great, great king on the earth and someone was going to do something like this, to be, this is what they would do. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Hmm. Now, for Jews, just kind of say this out loud, there was nothing like embalming. It didn't mean that it didn't exist. Humans knew how to do stuff like that, but Jews did not do any such thing. So this part of the custom was to hide the stench of the decay. It's kind of kind of gross, but there you go. That's what it says. And now some say, there seems to be a little controversy about this. Some say the spices also slowed the decomposition. I don't know if it does or it doesn't, and I don't know why they would want it to. It's kind of weird because all they're going to do is collect the bones a year later or whatever. So I don't know what's really going on there. Anyway, they wrap Jesus and the spices in a linen shroud. And this is all according to burial custom. They remove the nails that were in his wrists and ankles if they were still there, right? They got to make sure those come out. They wash the body. They have to wash it. They, they, they close his eyes, make sure his eyes are closed. And they wrap him along with the spices in this linen shroud and they knot the shroud at his wrists and at his ankles, not because this was anything special. This was all just custom. This was how they did it. And then they placed a separate shroud around his head. And they tied that up with, they call it seven windings. I don't even exactly know what that means, but somehow they had a special way of tying that around his head. Now, we're also told that Jesus is placed in a tomb that's cut 
out of rock. This was in, it's like a garden tomb. So it's right near where he was crucified. Remember, he's crucified in a garden right outside that gate, northwest side of Jerusalem. There's a tomb right there. And it's it's never been used before. And this is really kind of cool. Normally, when they would carve out some sort of tomb, it would in it would be intended to hold somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to ten bodies. A very common configuration was actually nine bodies. And this tomb would get used over and over because they would put people who died in there, they would give it an amount of time, let's just call it a year, and then they would come collect the bones. And then that slot, that niche, could be used again. So this tomb had never been used by anyone at all. And then again, Matthew told us that Joseph had this actually made for himself. Now, people, there's a lot of people that, you know, they're like, no, that that can't be true. Not about this, not about that. We don't know. I mean, the text says it, so I don't know why we want to not believe it. But, you know, let's just say, well, okay, maybe. Maybe he simply purchased it then and there because of its convenience. Well, maybe. I'm going with what the text says. Some people have a problem with it. Whatever. The point is, it's a tomb right near where he was crucified, so they didn't have to carry him far. Uh, Presumably, Joseph and Nicodemus weren't young uh, spring chickens. So that's, uh, you know, I guess maybe an important part. But this was one expensive burial. Whether whether Joseph had had commissioned this tomb to be created, or he would bought one that was already done, or uh, you know uh, Nicodemus bringing all the spices, this is an expensive burial, especially for some guy from Nazareth who was, by all accounts, poor. I mean, at best, maybe kind of common and average, but most consider him just to be poor. So. Side note, historically speaking, the actual tomb, the one that we've been describing, the one that he was placed in, the one that no one else had been in, that actual tomb, it's gone. It's just gone. Historically, we know it. It was raised by a Muslim conqueror. And all of this, all of this alludes to the suffering servant of Isaiah, uh, again. Uh, it's uh, Samuel, you know what? Why don't you read Isaiah 53, 9? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yeah. Now, I actually, I think that is super amazing. Uh, Now, okay, some people argue, well, actually, he died with the wicked and his grave was with a rich man, which is kind of the opposite of what Isaiah says. But we get the point. He was crucified and died with criminals and yet he was buried in the way that you would bury a king. You can see the obvious connection with that suffering servant. So, I don't know. I just think it's amazing. For what it's worth, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher identifies a remaining tomb as Joseph, as in like Joseph of Arimathea. Now, true, false, I don't know. Did did Joseph buy another tomb? next to the one that Jesus was put in so that he could be put there and that one didn't get raised by the Muslim. I don't know, maybe, but these are some of the things that people talk about. They either think are true or wish was true or whatever, but we're just, whatever, we're just throwing it all out there. Now, back to the story. When they're finished washing his body and anointing it and wrapping it, they likely just leave him on the bench that's there in the midst of the tomb where they do all of this work. 
And I say that because they they probably are expecting to return to do some additional rights and then actually slide him into, you know, one of the the slots or niches. Uh, we don't know this. I mean, it's, it's all speculation, but he's in the tomb, whether he's in a slot or he's on the bench, whatever, doesn't really matter. And they roll the stone in front. Just to say this, this actually would have been easy. When they built a tomb and they had the stone, it was usually uh, disc-like so that it would roll. And it was on a, a bit of a, a, a track that was slanted. And so what they would do, when they rolled the stone away, they would prop it up with a rock to hold it in place. And when you wanted to roll the stone back down over the tomb to close the tomb, all you had to do was remove that rock and it would roll on its own. So that's a thing. Uh, so they could have done this pretty easily. They just removed the smaller rock. Uh, rolling the stone away, like opening the tomb, well, that would have been way more difficult. And according to Mark in chapter 16, verse 4, this particular stone was extremely large. So at least we understand that bit of the story. And it's important to kind of keep that in mind because it relates to all of the the stories, Jesus's body getting stolen, this, that, whatever, all kinds of stuff. But anyway, there's that. Now, three of the gospels tell us that there were some women at the tomb and they saw all that happened. They saw his body was in that tomb. They saw that it was shut in with a rock. And so we have at least four witnesses to Jesus being in the tomb at this moment. We got Joseph and Nicodemus and the two Marys. And side note, mourning, this is kind of a Jewish ritual thing, mourning for the dead can actually begin when the tomb is shut. However, Sabbath prohibits most of the mourning rituals. And so they're going to shut up the tomb right when Sabbath is starting. I mean, this is just really bad timing for, you know, the mourners or whatever. So anyway, when Joseph and Nicodemus leave, they're met with the smell of roasted flesh. What? Well, I'm talking about all the Passover sacrifices. They're getting out of this tomb and man, it's just everywhere. And they cannot participate in Passover because they're now unclean because they've been working with a dead body. Now, here's the thing. Being rich men, and I'm talking about they were extremely rich men, they could have easily either paid other men or they could have sent servants or all kinds of, they could have had other people do this for them, but they did it with their own hands. This is an incredible display of love and devotion for Jesus. And it could have put them in great danger. They, uh, side note, they will have an opportunity to eat the Passover a month from now. There's kind of laws concerning that. You could go read about it in Numbers 9, verses 10 and 11. And maybe even a month from now, maybe they'll share a meal together. Who knows? But the point is, they were not going to be able to participate in this Passover. So Jesus dies around three-ish in the afternoon. And the sun at this time of year would have set maybe around seven-ish. So let's just call it four hours from when Jesus dies They've got to get permission. They've got to get the body down and they have to buy the linen and the spices. Maybe they even had to buy the tomb. I don't know, whatever. All of these things. And then they had to perform the actual burial. 
for us reading this in hindsight, it would seem that, wow, man, when they were done, it must have been as close to sundown as it can be. And they must have worked to the last possible moment and they were probably rushing at that. But the text doesn't explicitly say it. And so some think, no, you know, the sun hadn't gone down yet. There was still a little bit of time. We've got some wiggle room. And where we go next is actually going to add to that complication or that part of the debate or whatever. It's just weird trying to figure out, man, what time of day are we in? What are we talking about? What are we doing? So it could get a little bit confusing, but we're not going to worry about it too awful much. Samuel, that's it. What do you have, Dad? Yeah, I have a couple of contextual questions to add, hopefully for getting clarification. The first is you were saying about Joseph and Nicodemus being unclean because of interacting with a dead body. Right. Um, Would they have had to have immersed themselves in a mikvah like directly after this? Um, I'm trying to think of like how that process works for them in terms of, I mean, they're getting ready to enter into the Sabbath, but does that uncleanness prohibit in terms of like them being able to participate with other people in the Sabbath or would they have needed to do things in order to get themselves cleaned in order to enter into the Sabbath? Yeah, it's a great question. And and the, the cleansing rituals uh, include time. I mean, you can't just, oh, I'm unclean. I'm going to dip. Now I'm clean. <laughs> time has to pass. Uh, and, and some of the rituals are different. I, I have to think that the most important for, thing for them at this moment was to try to stay away from people so that their uncleanness was not transferred to them because then they would have ruined someone else's Passover. Mm-hmm. And so that would have probably been at the forefront of their mind. I doubt that they would have immersed immediately because, again, that didn't just automatically make you clean. They had to go through a process to be clean again. So I don't know, but it, it's all, I mean, everybody's daily routine or or rituals, or it was just such a mess because not only they're dealing with a dead body, but now Sabbath is starting and it's Passover, just so many things. So I don't know, Samuel, I just, they, probably they just wanted to stay out of everybody's way. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's got a, it definitely potentially adds a a somber melody, I guess, to Joseph and Nicodemus's the rest of their evening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not, not, not that they would be in the mindset anyway to participate in Sabbath whenever the person that they had been trusting as the Messiah is now dead, but it, it just shows that like what you said with um, morning rituals aren't allowed on the Sabbath, that it's not this rote kind of thing like, oh, you're not allowed to feel sadness or grief or pain. You have to immediately go into celebrating uh, Sabbath because that's our commandment. It's like, no, like even within that, there's stuff set in place where if you're unclean, more than likely you you need to take a step back and distance yourself until you can make that right. And that allows for time to be able to process and grieve and yeah. sit with all those very heavy things that has, that have just happened. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask is, are these four sections concerning the tomb, why we have the controversy of where the tomb actually is? Because 
when, like when we were in Israel, like I'm speaking about Paul and myself and our families, our tour guide was saying that there are kind of two arguing locations for where the the tomb was. One is actually within the Golgotha rock quarry itself, and that seems to line up more with the Matthew version where it says right. like in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock versus there's another location that is separate from Golgotha which is the garden tomb and that lines up with the the John version so is is, is that where we get these differing locations or are we supposed to sugge- am I supposed to visualize there being a garden within that rock quarry of Golgotha well <laughs> That is a really hard question to answer. First, I would go, is the text actually adding to the controversy? And I would go, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. It probably starts there. But wow, so much happened historically with different people coming in and ruling and building things and tearing things mm-hmm. down and doing this and doing that. Tradition carries on. Some people trust it. Some people don't. And I would say the controversy and everything associated with it, and do we know this location, that location, and it isn't just his tomb, it's every other thing. Uh, they've just taken on a life of their own, Samuel. They've taken on a life of their own. And you have some people who they think they know, they believe it with their whole heart, and it, no one could ever tell them differently. And you've got other people who don't believe that any of it is right. And And so it's just... Yeah, I don't know. I would say, sure, the text played a role in, you know, causing some of the controversy or confusion, but history would have, it would have done it all on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just, it's hard for me to imagine by the picture that has been painted to me about what Golgotha would have looked like. I mean, I've, I've passed by modern rock quarries before and it's kind of a desolate place there's not a lot of greenery surrounding the place where they are <laughs> right blasting you know hillsides mountainsides up to get exposed rock for their construction so it's just it's hard for me to imagine there being this garden that is placed in the middle of that but um yeah you know i don't expect to have an answer that's just something i will have to wrestle with yeah and that yeah it's just really difficult. We're, of course, reading about something, let's just call it 2,000 years ago. And, okay, so in the years that followed, what all happened to that little piece of land? And are you looking at something that, does it resemble what it looked like in the day? Is it even remotely close to what it looked like in the day? Uh, it, it just, I don't know. It's hard because so much has happened. I think probably the better thing for all of us to do is just to say, look, if we believe that all of these things are real and that there's, well, let's just say it that way. Everything that we believe, that we read in the Bible is true. We believe it. Then you just have to go, look, there was a place and Jesus was crucified there. And there was a place and Jesus was buried there. And there was a place. And guess what? Maybe it was around here. Maybe it looked something like this. And you just want to be near all of that and 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 know that you're sort of connecting to something that happened millennia ago, I think that's the best thing to do and just hold it loosely. If you think that it's in this spot and someone else thinks it's in another spot, just smile and love each other because the chances of either one of you being right are slim. So just, just, you know, just don't take it too seriously. Go with what the story 
is saying to you rather than the specific details of what the text says. Mm. Don't get so hung up on that. So I don't know. That's good. Anything else? Yes, but I'm actually going to put it back in my pocket because it's going to come up later. Oh, okay. Um, And I think that it would probably be better for us to let our listeners go because we are we are deep cutting it right now hey that's all right it's the best part of the story so (laughs) spend an extra minute or two all right well if that's it if you're holding that for later if it's going to fit well later then let's call her done okie dokie thank you for listening to the okie dokie most podcast don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode and be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.